If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to Shakespeare Past Master, our series exploring some of the playwright's most famous works and what they tell us about history. I'm Matt Alton. In this episode, we're discussing what Shakespeare's Henry V tells us about nationhood and nationalism. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. That's among the most famous lines from William Shakespeare's play Henry V, likely written around 1599. Exploring the events around the 1415 Battle of Agincourt, it has been interpreted as both patriotically viewing the past and reflecting the complexities of politics and war. I spoke to Jerry Broughton, Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary University of London, about how nationalism was viewed at the time Shakespeare was writing. Jerry, so we're here to talk about Henry V and how it explores themes of nationalism. Before we go any further, I wondered if you could run through, for people who might be unfamiliar, where this play fits in Shakespeare's works and what its plots and sort of central themes are. So Henry V, we believe, is written in 1599. So it completes a cycle of history plays that Shakespeare has been writing really since the beginning of his career. So it's interesting because he starts off, as it were, going backwards so the first cycle of plays are about Henry VI, of course, comes after Henry V. Then in the later 1590s, uh, he writes Henry IV, part one and two, which just precede Henry V. So really, it's the culmination of this particular cycle of plays on English history. He really, from that point onwards, breaks away from history, looking more at tragedy and comedies. Um, so it's very important in terms of how it uh, is a summation of his interest in English history, which leads up to the Tudors, effectively. And of course, is a culmination of the early history from the early 15th century of the battle, the French wars, that Henry V's battle at Agincourt really is the culmination and, and the end of that certain tradition of the Anglo-French rivalry and how that becomes so iconic iconic in English national history. And it's important, I think, for the Tudors, because of seeing the emergence of a certain idea of Englishness in contrast to the French um, at this time. So it's a kind of powerful historical moment being written in 1599, talking about history from the early 15th century, but very much, as we'll discover, also about the history of the present and what's happening to the Tudors absolutely right at this point in 1599-1600, which of course is also pretty much towards the end of Elizabeth's reign as she dies in 1603. And this is of course one of Shakespeare's history plays. To what extent are the events it depicts based in real history? This is a big dispute because he's drawing on certain sources, particularly Raphael Hollenshead's Chronicles, which in itself is highly selective about how it talks about the Plantagenet regime, talks about Henry V. There's obviously a basic historical skeleton of fact in there. Um, the battles of Harfleur, of Agincourt, of the, the numbers that are involved and, you know, this sense of the plucky band of brothers and the English being completely outnumbered, particularly in Agincourt and the way which the campaign proceeds, then his marriage into the French dynasty and the resulting sort of conflict that that leads to. But beyond that, we know that, of course, this is drama, it's not history, and Shakespeare is writing it for particularly theatrical effect. So we know that, for instance, the speech before Agincourt, the St. Crispin's Day speech, yes, we believe that there's some historical fact that Henry gives a rousing speech, but its relationship to Shakespeare's is, of course, completely different. And we see that throughout. So there's a lot 
lot of obviously poetic dramatic license that's taken based on the fact that it is based to some extent on historical reality but obviously from then on there's a sort of fashioning and reshaping of that for specific issues as always i think is the case with those kind of history plays they're always being written for very specific instances and they're speaking to the present in which they're written and obviously Shakespeare was writing this play a lot closer in time to the events it depicts. It wasn't extremely close, but it was much closer. Was he trying to make any particular points about that history and its relationship to what was then his present? Well, it's so complicated because this then becomes an issue that obviously if you're dealing with a more immediate English national history, is it offering a more conservative or more radical approach? Is it perhaps using that history to be critical of the present? And this is something that both historians and literary crit critics have talked about a great deal, obviously, over the last sort of hundred years. I mean, I'll give a certain view about what I think is going on, but there's certainly a sense in which there's perhaps an engagement and a, and a critical approach to what's happening in the late Elizabethan period by looking back to a sort of revered figure like Henry V, who becomes subsequently, as we know, certainly in later English national history, a sort of very powerful figure in terms of, you know, the success of the campaigns in France. But I also think we need to look at the detail of the play, which is relentlessly, I think, questioning the justification for going to war. It's relentlessly questioning issues of kingship or sovereignty towards the end of the play. And the very end of the play, rather interestingly, ends by saying, OK, well, Henry's you know, triumphed in France, but actually the offspring of his union with the French royal family leads to King Henry VI, which leads to civil war in England. And we've already shown this on our stage. These are plays that Shakespeare's written in the early 1590s, which really cements his reputation as a young playwright. So it's interesting that he doesn't end with some great peon to English national success. He says, actually, despite all these kind of ostensible sort of achievements of Henry V, the result of this is a civil war in England and Henry VI loses France and it all goes to pot. So... It seems to me it's it's hard to, to just uncritically say this is a celebration of English national Tudor or even earlier dynastic success. We can see that happening throughout subsequent stage history, which usually mimics what's happening in the national culture at the time. So when you have a film of the play in 1944, Laurence Olivier's version, you know, it's a moment around D-Day and the landings there. So what Olivier wants to extract from that is an uncritical sense of, you know, the importance of a holy war and that you have to succeed. When Kenneth Branagh does the play as a film in the late 1980s, he's very much coming out of a post-Vietnam and post-Falklands moment, which can extract similarly from the play much more of an anti-war sentiment. So it seems to me that what Shakespeare's done is not side with one or the other. He's given you something what we might call an open text. And so subsequently directors and filmmakers can really shape a response to warfare, to nationalism as they wish. And it's very much about how that works in a contemporary moment as much as what was happening in Shakespeare's time and as much as how it's a reflection on the history of the early 15th century Anglo-French campaigns. It's interesting because this ambivalence to put it mildly, I suppose, isn't necessarily, I think, how people might popularly understand this play. Do you think that's that's right? And why do you think that's the case? Well, I think it's because everybody wants to co-opt Shakespeare, you know, either left or right political views always want to have that cultural capital because that gives you a certain heft of authority. 
I think it is wrong because I think it does damage to the complexity of the entirety of the play, that there's always a different response. You know, drama is always about that. It's about competing debates and conflict. It has to set up some conflict, otherwise it's it's bad drama. So you can't just have a sort of uncritical celebration of one position or the other. So you'll see that, you know, and I would say either left or right, you can choose five lines from the Harfleur speech to say, this is a justification for, you know, putting up interest rates, as, as actually once happened, or it's a justification for, you know, going to war. But then do you want to see the lines that are also in that speech that talk about Henry saying... I'll murder all the virgins in the town if you don't give in and I'll enjoy, you know, ripping them to pieces. And you go, oh, that doesn't sound so great, does it? That's not such a great justification about warfare. So there's always a counterbalance to one argument or the other. But again, it's about Shakespeare. If you want to make a convincing argument rhetorically, politically, publicly, and you bring in Shakespeare and you bring in English national history, that's going to have a certain weight but as, a, as I say again, that does damage to the complexity, the ambivalence and the ambiguity that is always built into the drama itself. Staying with the idea of how Shakespeare gets across this complexity and this ambivalence, what specific characters and techniques does he use to get over this idea of it being more complex? One thing that you have is really from the outset, you have, before you even see Henry, you have a dispute between the archbishops who say, we are going to back Henry to go to France to launch a war. And this is being done because he's passing legislation, which is going to diminish the church's authority and take back some of its lands. So when you immediately see that scene, you realise that this is absolutely about Machiavellian rail politics. So the church is saying, we better back him and give him some justification theologically for a campaign, which is just about proving his sort of authority. There's no justification per se in invading France. That's effectively the opening scene in the play. Often that has been cut if you want to have a much more jingoistic pro-English national approach to the play you have to cut that you probably also have to cut the scene before Agincourt the night before Agincourt there's a scene towards the end of the play where Henry goes incognito among his soldiers to talk to them and he talks to one character interestingly called William Will which is interesting as Shakespeare's you know Will Shakespeare and this soldier says, why are we fighting for this guy? You know, we'll just die and he'll survive. And even if he's defeated, he might be ransomed, but he's not going to get killed. We, the working people, will. And Henry says, well, you know, maybe it's because of this and that. And there's a dispute between the two characters. And there's no doubt that that's been put in to, to really have that dispute. It's an open-ended debate. Is this a righteous war? Should we be going to war? Should we at any point? It's also about class. You also have in the play, in Act 3, Scene 3, you have the conflict between the different nations that make up the army. It's a kind of comical scene, but it's very powerful in the sense that you have an English commander and then you have an Irish, a Scots and a Welsh soldier. And they're all arguing amongst each other. And it's almost like the first version of the sort of parody of the joke about, have you heard the one about the Englishman, the Irishman, the Scotsman, and the Welshman? And there's a real seriousness, though, to the fact that they all gang up on the Irishman, who is part of Henry's army, 
And now at that point, when the play is being performed in 1600, probably late 1599-2, the English are campaigning against the Irish, right? They're killing the Irish in Ireland. So there's all these fractures in the play. There's all these m many more ambivalent aspects that you can't just align to a simple nationalist reading, that this is an uncritical celebration of English pluck, military valour and grit and determination. It just doesn't stand up. You mentioned there the idea of the play potentially being cut in various ways to get over a certain message. Are there different versions of this play that have attempted to do that? What's really fascinating is that the folio, the 1623 folio text of Henry V has what we expect now because our modern editions have all the choruses. They also have the sections of the archbishops arguing about you know, how they justify backing Henry going to war. These bits are not in the very first published text, which is in 1600, and it's what we call the quarto version. It's a small equivalent to a sort of cheap paperback edition. And the quarto version, which is published, has none of the choruses. So it has none of the bit that talks about the wood no in the opening chorus. It doesn't have uh, the final epilogue, which talks about how everything collapses when Henry VI comes to the throne and the country descends into civil war and England lose France. None of this is in the quarto version. So this is weird. So we've got a 1600 version, which is published without the choruses, without all the ambiguous bits about the challenges to Henry's authority, questions about why he should go to war. 1623, you have the folio published and all, this, all these bits are in. What seems to have happened is not that they were added in later, but that Shakespeare originally created the play as it now stands in the 1623 folio. But in 1599, early 1600, as the play is being written and performed, the Earl of Essex is in Ireland and he comes back and, of course, he comes back in disgrace and he launches a rebellion which is unsuccessful against Elizabeth. In the final chorus of Act 5 of Henry V, there is a reference, the only reference we have to a real-time contemporary event in all of Shakespeare's plays. And no wonder it gets cut because it goes so wrong. And he says, he says, Henry V is returning in triumph, you know, from France. As we hope in good time, Essex will return, bringing rebellion broached on his sword for the Queen. And it's this really weird moment where everybody goes, oh, he's talking about Essex. What actually happens is that Essex returns in absolute disgrace and launches a rebellion against Elizabeth. We think that, and I'm pretty sure, what happens is therefore the play has to be self-censored. Shakespeare, the company, whoever goes, flipping it, we can't refer to Essex anymore. And we also have to cut all the other bits which are ambiguous about English national identity because the regime just can't deal with it at that point. And I should add that throughout this period in the late 1590s, a lot of this stuff is going on. There are texts about Henry IV, Henry V, which are being deliberately published and used to support Essex and to question Elizabeth's authority. Books are actually being burnt as Shakespeare's writing Henry V. So I think this is kind of extraordinary and it shows as a kind of form of self-censorship. By 1623, Elizabeth's dead, Essex is dead. Shakespeare's dead. It doesn't matter. And the company can bring back, as it were, the full text. What's fascinating is that when you see very extreme right or left-wing versions of the play, particularly right-wing, sort of more conservative versions, what's interesting, and this happens with the Olivia film, 
they cut most of the bits that are also cut from the quarto text. So what that means, if you watch the Olivier, is he cuts out or he plays for laughs all the bits where there's a much more ambiguous questioning sense of Henry's authority. Because in 1944, with the D-Day landings about to occur, you've got to lose all that stuff. You've got to give the nation an absolutely focused, unquestioned belief in national sovereignty and the righteousness of going to war. And that's really also what's going on in 1599-1600. So it's a kind of fascinating replay of whenever you get into those extreme moments when the nation is in peril, you get the version of the play, which is the much more jingoistic, simplistic one. And if you go with the whole 1623 text, which has all the choruses, has the epilogue, all the doubting, questioning, ambivalent, difficult bits about sovereignty and warfare and its righteousness, then you've got a much more interesting play text, um, which continues, I think, to speak to us about the ambivalence of buying into a great, powerful military leader, buying into a war which is deeply questionable. These are abiding issues which, it seems to me, transcend sort of petty questions about English national identity. Do we get a sense of the extent to which the ambivalence that you see here in Shakespeare play was shared by the wider public of the time he was writing? Was he unusual in expressing this degree of uncertainty about nationalism and nationhood? I think that's a really interesting question, really important and hard to answer, because for so long we haven't really uh, detected those more questioning, critical voices. Now I think that we do see that. We see that there's a way in which some writers are starting to say, is this a sort of political system that we want to buy into? By 1599, you know, Elizabeth has been on the throne for over 40 years. There's a sense of drift. There's a sense of questioning. Is this kind of monarchy really what we want? The play seems to sit in a moment where there is more questions, there is more ambivalence, there is more sort of veiled criticism or questioning of Elizabeth's authority. And it's usually being done by returning to the past history. So talking about a figure like Henry IV, who overthrows Richard II. So to be even debating that in 1599 is clearly an implicit debate and discussion about is it right that we have an absolutist monarch or do we want to think about different ways of organizing our political systems do we want to think about republicanism do we want to think about an elective monarchy do we want to think about other ways of ordering our politics and i believe that the play is subtly doing that in 1599 but then it gets blown out of the water because of the, what happens with the essex rebellion but I think Shakespeare is mediating, debating, saying, do we want a figure like Essex? Because could he just be another absolutist autocrat anyway? Do we want a figure like Elizabeth? How do we think about succession to politics here? You know, there is no, you know, don't forget at this point, there is no natural successor to Elizabeth. People are really worried about this. What are you going to do? And actually you look back and you see a figure like Henry V and you think, oh, maybe that's what we want. We need a figure like him. So I think that there is a way in which now we're seeing veiled, uh, implicit criticisms of the regime. But it is a police state. 
you know, we have to remember this. You know, there is censorship. The plays are censored. They go through the master of the revels and they can be censored. And I think what we've got here is a play which is really engaging with politics. You know, people say, oh, Shakespeare was completely disengaged with politics. He's writing a play about Henry V when people have been writing plays about that period and writing books about it earlier that year that have been burnt. Don't tell me that he's not engaging with politics. Don't tell me that he's not really thinking about what's going to happen to the nation state. And don't really tell me that this is some uncritical celebration of it, because I don't think it is. I think it's a really subtle, careful, probing, thoughtful way of thinking about what kind of politics do you want? What kind of version of Englishness do you want? And that's why the play, I think, remains so powerful today. I saw a recent production just a couple of months ago, which was very much keying into you know the relations with Europe and obviously with France, because that's something we haven't talked too much about. But there's a whole scene in the play which is written in French. Catherine, his, his future wife, you know, talking about what it means to marry into the English royal family. And the scene is done exclusively in French. You know, that's kind of extraordinary now to do that. So the play still has this real punch, this real force, and it can't just be reduced to some jingoistic celebration of, you know, staying out of Europe. The play does not respond to that. Is there anything more that you'd like to say about what the play says in terms of its relationship to French national identity? Well, I think what's interesting about the play that I've always been struck by is the way in which both the English and the French courts, you know, the French courts before the Battle of Agincourt, they talk a lot about English identity and they talk about it as a mixed identity. They say, where have these English got their, their sort of metal from? They talk about their metal and their breeding. And they say, well, they are bastards because they're crossbred. You know, they're sort of mongrels because they, you know, they have the sort of, you know, Viking and they also have the you know, Saxon tradition and the French tradition. It's all mixed in there. And so I think that that's really interesting because there still isn't some sense of, of a purity of English national identity. I think it's asking again and again, what is Englishness, even in 1599? which, of course, isn't a regime which is really a parliamentary nation-state. It's a disunited kingdom. It's at war with itself. There's infighting between the Scottish, the Welsh. There's an open you know, conflict with, with Ireland as well. And that is foregrounded explicitly in the play. So I think it's telling us about the fractures always in this notion of Englishness in 1599 as much as in 2023. This is a play that has become famous, at least in part, because of a couple of really big speeches. Can you talk us through what those speeches are and the extent to which they are grounded in historical reality? The two big speeches, particularly that Henry gives us, which are those rousing bits, which are always anthologised, the speech before Harfleur, it's a siege of the town of Harfleur, and then it's the St Crispin's Day speech before Agincourt, the climactic battle at the end of the play. I think the Harfleur speech is, is interesting because it doesn't bear much uh, relationship to historical reality. And it gives us briefly this really shocking image of Henry as very much the sort of violent warrior who's prepared to just kill everybody. He says, you know, open the gates, let us in. And if you don't, then I will allow my men to come in and just murder everybody and rape the women and take what they want. You know, the soldiers are, are, are represented like sort of dogs, like animals. And often, actually, the speech is cut because of that. The, the, those more extreme references. So it tends to be condensed. It doesn't bear much reality. 
Agincourt again, there is an account that Henry, the real Henry, that historically there is a rousing speech before the battle, but it probably bears no relationship to what Shakespeare gives us, which is a, a very much, he uses this image of St. Crispin, a sort of saint of shoemaking. And he says, you know, this is about, you know, the working class men in England who will be disappointed that they won't be here. You know, the wee band of brothers, we happy few, which of course is taken up by Spielberg in his series about American soldiers after the D-Day landings. It's a very clever piece of rhetoric, but it bears no relationship to whatever Henry did give at that time. So it's a clever way of thinking about how you co-opt people around an abstract idea of the nation, because I'd still say Henry says all that, and he says he's going to ennoble everybody who survives the battle. We have no evidence that that happens. So it is in that sense, it is a foundational classic example of the way in which you co-opt working class people to fight for a concept that, you know, is completely abstract, the nation. We know there's the tomb to the unknown soldier is a similar idea about, you know, people who give up their lives for this abstract notion of nationalism. You know, it's, it's, it's a myth. And I think actually we should play it and it should be seen and should be staged with a deep scepticism about what that speech is doing. It is deliberately rhetorical. It is moving us. It is making us believe in something that we might want to actually question and not be so completely seduced by. That feeds really nicely into my last question, which is what, in your view, makes Henry V a play that's still interesting to perform and to read and to discuss in 2023? I think it's still a play which is incredibly interesting and, and vital and live because once again, we're having such a, a contested dispute and debate about what it means to be English. What is the relationship between England and the wider world? What is our belief in political authority and command? Do we want to buy into a charismatic individual? And if we do that, what might go wrong when we don't follow certain due processes? I think all those issues are, are more and more powerful. You know, in the 70s and 80s, it was very much a play which was about questions about, you know, the, the divided sense of a nation, you know, particularly post Falklands, what it meant, you know, post empire. Those issues are, are more alive now, I think, than ever. So it's probably become a play which is probably reclaimed more and more by the left because of how it gives you a much more sceptical and doubting sense of the state of the nation. But I think more than ever, there's no doubt that it will keep resonating. And I think productions at the moment are even more interesting than ever because of what's happening with Brexit, because of what's happening with political authority post-COVID. It's going to be a play which is, I think, going to have its time more than ever again. You know, and there's a great line, the great Shakespeare critic Hazlitt called Henry an amiable monster. And that ambiguity of an amiable monster, you both think he's a great guy. It's that story. You'd love to maybe go and have a drink with him. But I'll tell you what, he'd string you up without a second's notice, which is what he does at the end of the play. He just says, you know, people who he's been hanging out with in the taverns get done for, for thieving. And he just says, let them hang. So I think, you know, that again remains at the heart of the play, our deep both hypnotism by those charismatic leaders and also our deep scepticism about where they might take us and that i think is as important for us today as it's ever been and certainly was in 1599 when a similar version of that question was being posed about elizabeth and essex and here we are again 
That was Jerry Broughton, author of books including This Orient Isle, Elizabethan England and the Islamic World, published by Penguin. Don't miss the other episodes in this series, and you can also enjoy four extra bonus episodes featuring experts delving into plays including Titus Andronicus and Macbeth by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts and heading to our specials feed or subscribing to the History Extra website.